What's up, y'all? Welcome to Hotep-ish, intelligent-ish talk, intelligent shit talk, where we balance the profound with the profane. I'm not going to play my long live usual intro because we have a very special guest today. We want to jump right into it because Judge is a very busy man, so we don't want to waste any time. I want to welcome live once again to my platform, Judge Joe Brown. How you doing today, Judge? Hey, the judge is in the house. I guess I'm still breathing, so that's a good sign. Hey, still breathing. That's right. As long as you're still breathing, there's always something you can still get done. You right? That's one of two thumbs up situations. I want to thank you again for coming back on this platform. Um, thank you, everybody in the chat room. Please share the video. Get this out to everybody you know because we about the classes in session. We are going to talk about the attack on masculinity. We're going to talk about what real manhood is, and we're going to get Judge's point of view from his interview with Kwame Brown yesterday. Y'all know I've been reviewing the Kwame Brown situation since it started, and you know what he's been talking about. So we're going to get all into all of that. But I want to first start off by saying, you know, Judge's was raised in Los Angeles, just like me. And I want to first start off, Judge, you 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 hit on something yesterday in Kwame's interview about Bunchy Carter and the what happened with the Black Panthers. And I wanted you to expound on that because I, I, I've heard you tell the story before, but I want you to go a little deeper on what happened on that day with the US organization and the Black Panthers and why that matters, uh, and and how that's things like that get in the way of black progress. Okay, history can repeat. History can be stopped from repeating negatively if you learn its lessons. What happened in the '60s was black folk found that they were not going to get anything by being good and passive, mm -hmm. being good Negroes whose feet are firmly planted on the ground, got us nowhere. So we looked at the civil rights movement where black people, white people, passively got down on their knees and while praying, angry rednecks beat them across the head until some more liberal rednecks felt guilty about it, went nowhere. We decided to say, hell, we're not going to be ashamed of self. We're going to have pride, black power. I'm black and I'm proud. James Brown didn't start it. It made a song about it several when things got good. So we started organizing young black people, a lot of the older black people who had been in Korea World War II and been shot at and shot back, decided that this was not going to continue. So militancy developed. Things started really ramping up when the ordinary brother and sister on the street started burning down cities in rage. It was a different kind of thing than, say, the riots you found in 92 in L.A. when they were protesting the 
acquittal of police for beating Rodney King. This kind of thing got everybody's attention because essentially black people were vesting consequence on the system for the first time in American history and they were doing damage and destruction to city centers comparable to what the Army Air Force was doing to Nazi Germany in World War II. They passed civil rights acts, which incidentally were not portrayed as a civil rights act, but were portrayed as a military act to keep up the morale of the troops so they could properly resist communism and totalitarianism. It was an interesting trick LBJ pulled off to get it passed. Well, we started organizing and things started going fine and it looked like we're on the way. We were so in love with this concept of unity, which I see now everybody talks about unification and don't down brothers, you know, and all this other stuff that we discovered that our organizations were more infiltrated by snitches, (laughs) undercover cops, FBI agents, generally treasonous folk, jealous folk trying to take down the community to do what we called pimp the movement or pimp the revolution, that it became almost dangerous to participate in concerted activity, not from the obvious uniform uh, opposition, but from those who were within. Now, the US organization was formed by a person named Ron Everett, also known as Ron Karenka. He assumed the title of Maulana, which effectively means beyond Messiah. 1966, in his efforts to start spreading what we called usology at the time that masqueraded as black studies, and he wanted to start running programs at various colleges and universities. He did a few things and he became a snitch. In 1966 in Lamert Park, he had the first assembly for the purpose of Kwanzaa. We later learned that that was to encourage black people to talk. So people in his US organization who had been directed to take stenography would be hanging around taking shorthand notes and thereafter people started finding that anywhere these folk taking these shorthand notes were wound up with an unwilling trip downtown to FBI headquarters where you were carefully uh, interrogated on everything you had said verbatim. And it became quickly obvious that this organization, though it had many well-meaning members, was a cult. And the cult had reached an accommodation with such as LAPD's SIS unit, Special Investigative Services Unit, and the FBI, and was basically being given free license to do what they wanted. A lot of the black student union leadership, a lot of the black community leadership started getting murdered and the finger kept getting pointed back at the US organization. 
Mm. Well, when I got to UCLA way back when, there were 62,000 full-time students, grad and undergrad. We had 72 full-time black undergrads and 73 full-time black grad students for a total of 145 out of 62,000. We decided we were going to do something about it, and in 1966, we formed the Black Student Union at UCLA. Fast forwarding, we started making moves on the administration that, due to the eclectic nature of the Black students at UCLA, who came from all over UCLA, I mean L.A., and quite frankly, we had some intelligent gangsters, real gangsters, not this BS you find now, uh, who were in their 30s, who were effectively undergrads, but they were involved with organized crime. Slossons and... Serious bit, not street gang, but organized crime. You know, numbers, rackets, numbers, bankers, and this kind of thing. Yeah. That serious crime. And they Policy maze. Yeah. So some professors got jacked up. Some took sabbaticals and two weeks into a semester suddenly and things got blown up, burned up and all this kind of stuff. So we started getting influence as an organization and we wound up getting an agreement with the administration to increase the number of black students from 145 by whatever came through the front door and a block of at least 250 who came in through alternative means. Now, in those days, there was no tuition in California for the university, the state college, now state university, or any of the junior colleges. So it was a question of getting money to sustain rather than paying for the tuition. Well, we got in a block of 250 people plus, and there were some down brothers, and we had some interesting characters there, like Big Lou Alcindor, now known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, classmate of mine, and anytime we needed to do something, everybody was, let's go. All right, we let our guards down when the next year we got in another 250 and by now, we're at 1967, going on to 68. And this 250, uh, they're not good people. There was a person that reminded me much of a Barack Obama, and I won't mention his name. But he came in as a transfer so he could become a junior he transferred in from a junior college and he was bourgeoisie and i remember we had this thing we had to do and we said come on brother he says excuse me it's not that i don't appreciate the sacrifices that you brothers have made such that I could gain entry, but you say I can't afford to jeopardize my career. You'll have to go on without me, but I'll be there with you in spirit. So we grabbed him 
And I remember he had on a pair of light gray slacks. And while he's there, he's trembling. And these couple of brothers from the ball, one of the ball teams were holding him up, one on each arm. And he pissed on himself. You could see the stain going down his left pant leg and a puddle of piss down his left shoe. So the brothers jumped back. My nephew pissed on himself, man. And he fell down in his own puddle of pee. And when he recovered, he spread it off coward did he was from the scene now over the years he became advisor to three u.s presidents on black affairs and he was one of these obama types doing just what obama did and every time i saw barack obama i saw this coward who fronted off the revolution mm. the effort that others had and he didn't do a damn thing personally and had every excuse for not doing it. And the surprising thing is this within the last seven days, we heard Obama try to justify why he did absolutely for black people. And he said institutionally he couldn't do it, which is complete BS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he said you that know? recently. Yeah. And you know what was funny? He used almost the exact same words that this clown used to use to explain why he was such a coward and didn't stand up and do anything for the black movement back in the 60s. All right. Now, he's in there and he got jacked up by the US organization. He's a punk. They slapped him around, threw him on the wall, and he started collaborating with them trying to get the US organization to run the black studies program that we were going to get set up mm -hmm. when the rest of us found out about it we weren't having it so we had a few hot meetings and i know there was one where it was in a hall wasn't a big one and there were about 75 80 people in there and i know there was one thompson submachine gun two hand grenades a bunch of 45s 357th and everything and it was black student union folk panther party folk and the us organization was on the other side so mm -hmm. it could have been just a bloodbath now, we had found that in our special admission program, we could reach out to the wider black community, and we encountered Bunchy Carter. He had been head of the Slawsons, which was a street gang that evaporated like all of the rest of them after the 65 uprising in L.A. when all of the tension and frustration got out of everybody's system and black on black crime dropped to almost zero. I think there were only two black on black homicides in 18 months. There were no burglaries, no robberies, no rapes. That was in 1968, wasn't it? No, this was, I'm talking about after the wire. Oh, riot, after, uh, yeah. 566. You know, there's nothing going wrong in the black community. And LAPD wouldn't come in there unless they were riding 5D. I want to, I want you to corroborate a story with me that, real quick, Dr. Judge, and stay on this subject. Uh, Judge, my uncle was a police officer in 1967 here in L.A. And he talked about those years when there was basically no crime between 66 and 68. And he talked about after the riots, a lot of the LAPD who was in South Central in Watts the white boys that was messing things up, they shipped them out to the valley and then brought yeah, in a whole bunch did, of brothers down here in South just, Central L.A. They did just exactly that. See, All right, I cool. Was, so you people, I, when I tell that story, Judge just corroborated it for me. 
All y'all future listeners, y'all know I ain't bullshitting when I tell that story now. Go ahead, Judge. That's absolute truth. And things improved. Now, at this point, we started bringing in, before I got diverted about the evaporation of the street gangs, We recruited Bunchy Carter, who had been president of the Slawsons. He had done penitentiary time, and functionally, he had been illiterate. But like Malcolm, he taught himself to read and write, read the dictionary. And he started writing beautiful poetry, which is what brought us to brought him to our attention. So the special group of about 10 of us who were doing the recruiting, it was basically four brothers and six sisters who were doing that because we couldn't get anybody else to go out in the hood to the projects and stuff to do the recruitment. But we got John, uh, Bunchy Carter in there. And then we recruited John Hudgens from Connecticut, who was the minister of information for the Black Panther Party. And Bunchy was chairman of the Black Panther Party. And then, in fact, I recruited both of them, to tell the truth, exclusively, my doing, and brought them to the attention of the rest of the committee. And then I recruited Geronimo Pratt, known as G, who had just gotten out of the Army. He was a sergeant. He'd done three, four tours in the NAM as a Green Beret. We got Nathaniel Clark in, I recruited him, and Elaine Brown, I recruited her. So we had a Panther presence, and they recruited a few more people, some of the black student union folk out there, and there was a general cooperation between the Panther Party and BSUs around the L.A. area. Okay, we started resisting the Karinga thing. Well, it got tense and as i said there was that meeting that could have been a bloodbath well a week and a half later there was a lunch in the cafeteria of what's now known as camp well was known as campbell hall that they were going to tear down but we shall we say politely not so politely convinced the administration to give over to minorities so they had a meeting in the cafeteria and for us organization members who were known to everybody in the room who weren't students came and John was standing up talking after the meeting was starting to break up and they shot him right in the back. Mm. One of them did, one of the gunmen, and then the other gunman stepped in front of Bunchy and shot him point blank in the chest twice. Well, John hits the ground, but he's not dead yet, or at least he doesn't know it. He sits up and fires six shots out of a 357 as the four hitmen were running down the long hallway. He hits one right in the back over the scapula, but it doesn't drop him. He keeps going. Well, there were 42 witnesses in the room. So, okay, they run out. Meanwhile, on the third floor, I had an office. And because of my animus toward the US organization, apparently while Elaine Brown and I were walking back up there, we had just left the cafeteria when the shooting occurred. 
somebody kicked in my office door mm-hmm. and fired four shots through the back of my chair, which I had arranged because with the back facing the door because we were going to have a conference. So everybody got the guns out of the building. Another sister who had been recruited, I won't mention her name because she's still around. She helped get everybody's hardware out. I went down and uh, John was, eyes were glazing open, blood bubbling out of his Mm -hmm. mouth. And Bunchy, I tried to help him. He was down on one arm, elbow, and he was moaning and it was done. Both of them got their hearts basically ripped up by the bullets. So that was one of the examples of what happens when you get too much focus on unity and not enough on who is unifying. See, we have to have a period where before we talk about unity, we got to have some fights, some knockdown, drag out or worse brawls to get the riffraff out of the way, the pimps and the hustlers, the cons and the enemy out of the way before we talk about unity. But that's not popular these days, but it's 50 some years in the past and most have forgotten it. So that said, a lot of the black students attempted to uh, cooperate with the police on getting these fools because nobody liked them. Mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting. We had a black <laughs> vice chancellor of UCLA who was the acting chancellor. And that day he was conducting a luncheon for six visiting chancellors of major European universities. Well, LAPD kicked in the door to the dining room and rammed a shotgun in his chest, he told me, and then marched him a half mile across campus over to Campbell Hall in front of all these 60-some thousand students. That's they a nice little walk. I know that walk. <laughs> yeah, they're ramming the shotgun in his back, he says, and they brought him in where the killing had occurred. And they handcuffed him along with about 45 or 50 of the other black male students they could round up. So finally, a black detective got there and he tried to get some sense in it because the white boy was acting a damn fool and going around taking shotguns. You like this? You like this? You know, like, hey, man, you you know, like what you (laughs) doing, man? You got to go there. Uh, Like, fuck you, you know. (laughs) do what you got to do and explain how you did this. And there's the vice chancellor sitting there. You're going to kill him. Mm -hmm. You know, so anyway, it's quite embarrassing. And it served a purpose. It radicalized the chancellor who was kind of, you know, a little bootleg at the time, but he got angry about it. So during the investigation, we had been telling these homicide detectives that these folk work for you. Oh, that's bullshit, blah, blah, blah. So myself and another guy, we got a call. They had no cell phones. And said, can you meet us at this restaurant? Said, okay, why not? Got to be in a restaurant. Can't talk. We get there and say, look, you guys are right. 
we've had things happen to us that are done by our fellow cops. And when we try to go bust these clowns, nobody knows but this department, but somebody tips them off always. And you're right, somebody inside our department is working with these people and these people are working with us. So to make a long story short, they only caught two of the people, not the two gunmen, but the two accessories. Johnny Cochran represented them along with another attorney. They went to trial and they got convicted of second degree murder. Mm -hmm. They got sent to a penal camp in California. But within one week, they were brothers, literally Ken, blood Ken brothers, twins, actually. They just walked off. Now, they took down the All Points Bulletin within 48 hours. And about three years, two years later, there's a gentleman named Ayuko Babu, who with myself and some others, we were trying to help out Frelamo, the gorillas in Mozambique. Well, we had gotten an old... DC-8 jetliner that some enterprising people had bought to deliver non-regular cargo, and it was filled up with combat boots, but before he could leave the runway, the State Department seized it, so he decided to raise money. So we got Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, Taj Mahal, Pharaoh Sanders, Oscar Brown Jr., and Gene Pace, and some other noticeables to give a concert at the Palladium which was down on Hollywood Boulevard then. Well, they're supposed to close at two, but everybody was jamming so tough, and Stevie did a three-hour-long concert, and he just tore the place down. That sounds like Stevie. I mean, so, the, <laughs> so the man was saying, look, I, I, you got, I don't want you guys to burn this place down. If you ask them, please, to take the drinks off the table and at least put them on the floor under the table after 2 o'clock, we'll stay open as long as it goes. So for the first time, the Palladium stayed open past 2. We didn't break up until the sun was up at 6.45 a.m. But while all this is going on, I'm walking through the audience, and who do I spy? These two that had been convicted of second-degree murder that walked off from the penitentiary, the prison camp, and I said, what the hell are you doing out here? Oh, man, we just walked off. So I made sure my pistol was in my pocket because mm -hmm. I didn't get along with those folks. They tried to kill me a time or two or three. And interestingly enough, 25 years later, they got tired of running, and they attempted to surrender themselves, and California system said, we don't, we don't want you. Go about your business. You ain't done nothing since. Keep going. See, that's... Now, back to the story at hand about how it applies to now. I'm saying that about 67, going on 68, everything was at its height. Two things happened. LBJ said he was not going to run for re-election because he did not want to further divide the American public. And Tricky Dick, I am not a crook. Uh, Nixon... <laughs> B. Hubert Humphrey, who was the Democratic Party presidential nominee, he had been vice president for uh, LBJ. Oh, one piece of history. The 80s, of which my late mother is now an ivy behind the wall. She got made in 1934, so I speak with a filial privilege. The AKAs are bragging about Mrs. M. 
the current vice president being the first black Greek to be vice president. That's not true, because when I pledged, we had to meet big brother Hubert Humphrey, vice president of the United States of America, who was a tall, bald-headed white boy who got made back in the 30s in Minnesota when they were pledging hard with a lot of wood, and then he joined back up with the grad chapter later on. So just because you are a member of a black Greek organization doesn't mean you're black. Mm-hmm. But speaking of that, by the way, that's another thing that's been lost. The black Greek organizations did not start out as party groups. They started out as revolutionary organizations masquerading as black Greek social fraternities and sororities. Their job was to implement, agitate, communicate, and organize to fight American apartheid, a.k.a. American segregation, which Mm -hmm. is why you will see Thurgood Marshall, Martin Luther King, Andrew Young, all of those civil rights leaders, and a few others belong to the frats. We had four male frats and four female frats, so everybody was divided up into cells so you couldn't get everybody. The pledging was hard. It was pure torture, literally physical torture. Mm-hmm. The idea was to brutalize the pledge crossing the sand so you could turn the shaky ones back. Mm-hmm. So if you got captured by Sheriff Bubba, you wouldn't tell on everybody. As a matter of fact, as an exemplar of that, we had two alpha men, attorney E.W. Willis, and attorney Russell Sugarman, who became a judge. Both of them are now dead. Mm-hmm. But when Emmett Till got killed, they brought down a black cop who was a photographer, Ernest Withers, who's got a permanent exhibit now in the Smithsonian Institution. And they went down there and they got in and got the chance to see Emmett Till's body. And Mr. Withers took six rolls of film that he did not take the time to develop. He gave three rolls to Sugarman, three rolls to Willis, and they fled out of Mississippi. Four cars got burnt or shot up, and uh, several people got wounded. Nobody got killed, and A.W. told me later he got captured, and they tortured him for a few hours before he could escape and join Sugarman in Illinois, and they got a local, I think it was Walgreens, to develop the film. They took what they had to the Illinois governor, and he demanded Till's body back, and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. See, that Alphas did, and Willis said he was so glad he got pledged like he did because it was nothing compared to what the sheriff and the Klan were trying to do to him to wow. get information on where Willis, uh, where Sugarman was. Mm-hmm. See, so what it was about, now they got sissies that if you shove them, they want to extort the frat and letting them in. You know, we <laughs> used to have a thing. I got somebody trying to sneak in the frat ain't going to be so shit like that. And I'm going to give you a claim to fame. They step and stomp the yard, right? Blair, yes. You see the frat, they, they step. Yeah. Guess who? Are you? I was Dean of 
But yeah, I was dean of pledges for the Alphas in 1967. And they used to have these frat games at Cal State LA where they'd have Lakers and Celtics and all these NBA players who were frat. And they would have eight weeks of frat games. And I mean, the scores would be like 194 to 86. And they played some basketball because they loosened the rules up. So I told my pledge line that I was in charge of, you are going to put on this show, invent something. So they got with me and told me what they were going to do. And we had a guy named Maurice who had been head cheerleader at Dorsey High. This is when the guys weren't sissies. They threw the girls up and caught the soft booties. You know, Dorsey, that's my girls. neighborhood where I grew up right there. Dorsey High School. Yeah, yeah go ahead, brother. Yeah, that's where I went to high school. So anyway, uh, he had a peculiar way of doing stuff, and several of the people on the line had been to Dorsey High. So they got the idea. So they show up after big brother Bob Cole and I were applying a generous amount of wood for encouragement. They show up with black capes with gold linings, black dress tuxedos, and some spit shine shoes with canes and top hats. And they did this number where they went all around, got crazy from side to side, everything. And that's how it got invented. So since this was over spring break, we had all of these visitors from the South who had grown up in Los Angeles, but were going to Southern schools, they took that stuff back. So you're looking at the person that invented that. That's I so dope, Judge. And I, I so, want to go ahead. Uh, we get to this thing when Tricky Dick gets in. All hope vanished. I guess they looked at LBJ as great white daddy, okay? And he did a lot of stuff for black folk. And if you were alive then, grown and you saw what he did this erstwhile racist from texas and you compare it to what say clinton did or did not do or what obama didn't even come close to doing in fact did nothing you get yeah. real disgusted man this was 55 60 years ago almost this racist out erstwhile racist who used to use the n-word and when he was polite, said Negro, did all of this for black people. And now you got one and he's talking about the institutional constraints kept him from doing anything for the people. He pimped us into believing he was part of. <laughs> Man, see, see, that gets me mad. But back to 68, Nixon got in and people lost hope and the FBI was in seeing to it that there was a lot of intimidation of everybody who was in leadership. You, you were a member of an organization. They'd snatch you, come with us. They'd take you 20-some miles down to downtown L.A. They'd take all your pocket change. Nobody had cell phones then. We learned not to take phone books because they'd seize those. They'd interrogate you, start quoting you all this stuff that you knew the us folk had taken down shorthands and say student meetings or community meetings and everything saying the my line needs to know that's why we doing it okay fine and then they'd leave you so you don't even have a dime to make a phone call and you're 20 some miles from where you last saw your car and everybody got so they couldn't trust anybody and people were getting killed left and right 
So it just sort of evaporated. And then about years later, early part of 1970, late 1969, the street gang started reviving again. And I remember I was a substitute teacher. And they called me Brother Joe. And Brother Joe, what you know about them street gangs? I said, poison. My big brother say, you know, blah, blah, blah. My uncle say, blah, 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 blah. I said, it's poison. You don't need that. But I think, you know, they getting ready to go rock again. You know, blah, 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 blah. And the street gang started rising up again. That frustration started hitting. We had movies like Black Caesar starting yep, Fred yep. the Hammer with and then that really poisonous one, Superfly, Superfly came in. Superfly and the uh, Mac. A group, a group of about 11 of us went to a, a theater to check out Black Caesar. Mm. Little did we know that Hollywood was trying to emphasize that because they wanted to get the cash out of the poor part of the black community that was being unused and Hollywood was going broke and they needed the cash flow. So we go in there and we're watching this movie and the hero, Black Caesar, is a gangster. He's a murderer. He assassinates people. He sells poison. And he rides off into the sunset in the limo smoking a big cigar, the hero and rich. And we're looking, wait a minute, something's wrong with this picture. We're talking revolution, and we're saying all the pimps, drug dealers, and such like need to be killed, put on a wall, and shot. And they made this dude a hero. And all these black folk here trying to spend their money, man, what's that doing to the mind? Mm -hmm. And then they had the Superfly 1971-72 where they glorified cocaine and riding around in what's now known as a pimp mobile. And folks were born black power just to be stylish with afros, dashikis, and jeans and boots. They were going around, man, I need to sell some of that cocaine. And they started frying their hair again, just like Rod O'Neill, who played the role of Superfly. Mm -hmm. And everything was really going downhill past that point. So we've had a 50-year hiatus, and we have had, meanwhile, an intensive propaganda campaign through the media. Man. The glorified dysfunction. So in the 1960s, you know, the hip thing to be, if you were a black man, a young black man is to be in college. Plus it had its practical side effects. Like you got a 2A instead of a 1A and a free all expense to pay trip to hot, humid, sunny Vietnam to study the insect population <laughs> and get some right. You're right about so, that, Judge. I wanted to just... See, the heroes of pimps, thugs, hoes, drug dealers, burglars, robbers, murderers, gangsters of the street kind, you know, rather than the organized kind. So it's crazy what they've done. It's and crazy. the young black kids think in terms of the propaganda and they say stuff now that you heard some little cupcake freaks say off on campus, you know. We must be against war, and war is the man thing, and we got to stop the way boys are raised to men and change them to raise them like girls so they will be peaceful and learn to emote, to cry, to shout, to let it all hang out instead of being so uptight and violent. 
hell, <laughs> hell. Now, these same folk, part of them, the feminists, are trying to get the women in frontline military units. You know, that's not cool. It's not. And, you know, and Judge, I want to reset the, for everyone coming in right now. We're talking to Judge. He just finished explaining what happened with the Black Panthers and the US organization. He's now going through what happened in the early 70s with the propaganda campaign. And to bring a little context to it, the reason why I brought that up, a lot of people just saw Judas and the Black Messiah, the movie that came out about Fred Hampton. But I always want to let people know that. But you no, know, Fred Hampton was one. It was a, it was a lot of great Black Panthers. Bunchy Carter was also another one. And uh, Elaine Brown. And this was a big movement that we had that the government got in his way and used people who looked like us to thwart the progress of what was going on. And so I always want to bring that when people always say we're complaining about something. Oh, black people just don't get their stuff together. I'm bringing this out because the times that every time that we've gotten together as a unit, as a group to do this, we get people who left the plantation and snitches coming around our mix, like Judge is saying, re-messing things up for them other folks. So it's a lot of things that we have to clean up internally, but I want to bring context to the story. And it's funny you brought up Superfly because... My dad always told me, he, uh, he graduated high school in 71, and he always talks about how Superfly, the Mac, and Shaft all came out around the same time. And, you know, that generation, that generation that had just graduated high school in the late 70s, they thought that they actually had progress from these countries. And then those movies came out sort of to propagandize, and a lot of black people went down that path of those movies. And we've been dealing oh, with that with that ever since. You mentioned Max. You mentioned Max Julian and the Mac, the pimp. Max Julian went to the same junior high school I did, John Muir Junior High. Hey, my dad yeah, went have, there. <laughs> my I'd dad went to Muir too. <laughs> hey, I have to apologize to him on behalf of his fellow classmates for letting him get his ass whooped so much and his lunch money taken. If we all have a laugh, laugh when we look at Max Julian is the pimp. Oh, come on now. The <laughs> dude that you brought home all the time. Come on now. We, we did it wrong, but you know, that ain't right. So see, Hollywood takes these myths and they get actors to play parts that represent characters that they are not which is part of the problem. They manipulate what we think and the people that set the tone for what is appropriate and what's not, what's right, what's wrong, are people who singularly insulated. They sit around in cafes drinking Chablis with a glass of red on the table for appearances and the Chablis down on the floor. The type of place where they have coffee tables instead of bar tables and they sit on couches and they nibble cheese and crackers and they exchange ideas and fantasies about the real world years and years ago the real reporters used to hang out in the bars where the longshoremen and the workers worked and they got in touch with reality but these guys are something else so they give you their fantasies now, no aspersions on Fred Hampton. He was a nice young guy. But when everything was at the height, Fred Hampton wasn't but 15, 16 years old. When they killed him, the Panther Party had been effectively dead for one year. 
and he was just holding on. He didn't know how to handle what was going down. And uh, Chicago police, being Chicago police, uh, just took him out because they just took people out. So there wasn't one Judas. There were a whole bunch of a whole bunch of over, Thank you. And over the years since, literally, and I kid you not, uh, I've gotten information through Freedom of Information Act requests. And I've looked up some organizations that I dealt with or was affiliated with or belonged to. And my suspicions were confirmed because I discovered that the majority of the people in the damn organization were working for somebody with some of those alphabet agency acronyms, you know, like, damn, blah, 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 blank, redacted, informed, so and so and so and so. I said, I know what that is because I was there. That's who he is. See, when you were there, they can't redact it because you recognize what somebody was doing. Uh, they had a guy named Lewis Tackwood who wrote a book. I've got a copy here. And if you get it now, it's $1,600, but it's a paperback. Lewis Tackwood, everybody in the movement knew because he pulled himself, put himself off as a paramedic and he treated injuries and wounds and that kind of thing. So he kind of got around because he was useful. I was shocked as hell when as a law student, I was attending a murder trial and they put him on the stand. I said, what's he doing? And he was not a snitch. He was Lieutenant Tackwood of LAPD, their top ranking undercover officer. I said, oh shit, but he didn't tell on everybody. Incidentally, uh, he, in this book, the glass house tapes talks about Angela Davis and how he got an instruction from the attorney general district attorney of Los Angeles, who later became attorney general of the state of California, Evel younger under Ronald Reagan, the governor and Reagan had been talking about commies in the university of California and the LA times challenged him to find one. After a long search, they came up with Angela Davis and Everybody says, oh, wow, Professor Angela's beautiful sister, but she's no rabble rouser. And hell, that's when she was a freshman in college years ago. So no, seriously, she's a dangerous commie. So Tackwood talks about his meetings with Evel Younger and Ronald Reagan and how he was instructed to get the LAPD's burglary squad, break into her home, seize those weapons and work on this crazy little 15-year-old kid who had some mental health issues. One of his, his actual brother was one of the Soledad brothers that were in the news at the time because of an uprising in the Soledad Penitentiary. They were having a court hearing, and Tackwood details how he supplied a van and the weapons stolen from Angela Davis's home to give to this kid after he had wired him up and convinced him that everything was going to depend on him. And that was this big plan. So when the kid walks in with the hardware, the Soledad brothers go, Oh hell, what is this? So that it, it goes down and Tackwood says, he said, he brags almost about how he set it up and they get Angela and she gets acquitted. But you see, that's how ruthless they were. Now, right now, we get bent out of shape because there's a sporadic here and there killing 
of black people that makes the headlines because we've got these cell phones. We can, everybody looks in the viewfinder, you know. But let me assure you, the height of the, the rate of the killings that went on that were attributable to the police, undercover police, or people working with the police who had a carte blanche to murder for their interest because they took out that perceptibly dangerous black individuals who would make change. The number of killings that have made the headlines in the last, since the beginning of this year, would be about Monday through Wednesday in a typical week. Back then, with no cell phone tapes, just what got reported, which was a small percentage of time. Mm-hmm. Hell, I remember when I was in law school, we went out to Venice, which is where Maxine Waters has a district, and now you can find human excrement all over the place. And I live I, in her district. I see it. <laughs> yeah. So we went out there to interview these witnesses, me and two other law students, and we're on the front porch, and some guy drives up in a brand-new Oldsmobile 442. He just got off the dealer's lot. He comes up on the porch. He's proud. He's bragging. Everybody goes over to look to the car. We come back to the front porch. But then some drunk comes down the street, sideswipes six or seven cars instead of including his, and then rams a phone pole, crumples up the front of the car, staggers out, and collapses over the front of the car. So the police are called from a ground line. Half hour later, no cops. 45 minutes later, no cops. Hour later, no cops. So we're done our interview, but now we're curious to see what's going to go on. Well, about an hour and a half later, after about 10 people called, they have two cops show up riding two in a car, right? They look at it, and somebody says, aren't you going to go get the guy? He's still passed out over the hood. Oh, he just looks drunk. We don't need to call the ambulance. No, aren't you going to arrest him for drunk driving? We got better things to do. Wow. So they bit. So they called the sergeant. Sergeant shows up, says, oh, you complaining? So how are you for that car? He said, well, I work. He said, that car is too good for you. He said, you don't need it. Keep you from getting your head too high in the clouds. That is Rick. Wow, he's gone there. So the guy said, well, what the hell, man? I'm a taxpaying citizen. He said, I want to complain about this. He said, you know what? You want something to complain? How about this? He drew his four-inch barrel Smith & Wesson combat masterpiece, 38, rammed it in the guy's left shoulder and shot it. Bam! Now you got something to complain about. Come on, boys. Let's go. So he got in his car and the two cops got in theirs. And this guy, he shot me, man. And he's bleeding. So we've got to take him to the emergency room. We bring two law professors down to get involved, and we go to the precinct, and they've got this book at the time with these little pictures of all the cops in the precinct, and they've got three conspicuously empty spaces that you can tell haven't been faded because pictures have been over them. Mm. Guys must be wrong. Can't be anyone from this precinct. And this is the precinct in the area. Certainly no one would come from outside. Well, what about these three pictures? What three pictures? Where that occupy these places? Oh, you got to be wrong. We certainly wouldn't take them out. Oh, see, wow. That's the way they used to roll all the time. So when I look at this and somebody's running 
and get shot down because he got a misdemeanor case and he doesn't want to go to jail. Okay, fine. But he gets shot down or he's a junkie and he's about to OD and somebody chokes him out. He's six feet, seven, 250 pounds and 135 pound, five foot, eight inch, nine inch white guy wrestles him to the ground, throws him down and it does and it doesn't even shoot him. Everybody gets worked up and we get all this and that going on and we go panicking. Oh, they're shooting us. We'll see in the 60s people shot back. Yes, yeah, so, they did. That's a yeah, myth people yeah. don't understand. They shot back in the 60s. Yeah, and see, the Panther Party and the BSUs were conducting armed patrols of the black community, so when LAPD pulled somebody over, everybody would back off 25 yards and, you know, put the shotguns on the hood of the car and watch. So things were peaceful, but you see... They don't understand. You talk to your father. They don't understand now. They don't get it. They don't get it, Judge. And that's what I wanted to get to you about, uh, 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 talk about, you know, as far as men, excuse me, manhood and masculinity. You were just in Tariq Nasheed's new film, Bug Breaking. And great job, by the way, because you gave some good information. For those of you, uh, Dr. Randy Short was also in that. He's, I interviewed him last uh, earlier this week. Look at that interview. But you were in Bug Breaking. And that's a movie about the breaking of black masculinity in America. You were around in the sixties as this thing started and you see where it is now. How did we get to the point from, cause people forget people don't even understand back in the sixties, black people are lied to and told that we shall overcome is what got our rights. And they don't ever talk about all the ass whoopings your generations laid down back in the sixties. Y'all weren't messing around. Y'all, Y'all were in, in Miami, standing on top of rooftops, busting back, whether it be in Chicago, L.A., you name the black city, black people fought back. And that's what the Kerner Commission report was about. And the Moynihan report talking about, hey, look, man, these black folks, these motherfuckers is tough. And how do we go from use from that to skinny jeans and these dudes walking around with their bussy hanging out, acting like homos? What, how do we go from there to where we are now? See, that butt hanging out, that is homosexual. That's when they're doing short time and you got lifers and long timers and they need some booties. Back 1980 summer, first time I saw that, I was interviewing somebody on the yard. My law partner had been killed during, he was representing some drug cases. Everybody died that was involved but me included. We had 42 defendants, cops federal agents and stuff were caught up in the damn thing and every lawyer every detective investigating it and every damn defendant got killed except me and my two clients but i was interviewing this brother and we're on the yard and he's telling me about this and the reason i was on the yard is the air conditioning broke down 105 degrees that day so I see this dude walking by with his bridges down and some boxers, but they had the boxers rolled up. So his butt cheeks were showing at the bottom too. I said, well, what the hell is that? See, they don't let them wear belts, but they have a, a prison industry where the inmates who can do tailoring, they tailor everybody's jeans. So they fit pretty smart. So here's this dude with bagged out jeans Hung off his butt, 
in a big baggy shirt. I'm saying, what the hell is that? He said, oh, man, lawyer Brown, man, that's soon to be main pussy, man. Good. It's like we got all these brothers in here doing life and long time, man. That's them short time suckers, man. So, like, we make them wear that. So, see them trees over there. When the gods ain't around, we bend them down, pull them down, and get down. And everybody's supposed to do it until that ass get loosened up so he don't bleed when everybody go fucking. So, see them gals over there with them dresses and them wigs on? He gonna be like that in a little bit. We already got Jamal and got his baby sister on set of care package with some rouge, mascara, eyeshadow, you know, lipstick, uh, nail polish, and some plastic nails. And we already done made him some jewelry in the metal shop. We gonna girl his ass up real good. And when he get on the cell block, he gotta take them pants and panties off and that shirt, that'd be his dress. So everybody fuck him until, you know, he get to liking it. So that came out as the style. By the way, there's a thing about the penitentiary. You do 14 months in your typical penitentiary and somebody's torn that ass up and you wrapped your mouth around a lot of dick. But uh, it is what it is. Not always, but that's a high proclivity. When you sentence somebody to jail, you're sentencing them to be an effective gay. And a whole lot of these black folk get out of the joint and they don't get rid of the taste. See, they like it. It's funny. I have some kids that I represent. They're older juveniles and their mama's paying the fee. Then they get to be young bucks and they got three or four ladies to pay the fee. And then they do that first time for a year and a half for two years they serve. They get out. Now they got three gay boys and one sister paying their fee. And it's all it's so typical. Always happens. Sisters were coming back. No, I want my money back. You can't have that. I put my money up. He doing me wrong. He done picked up some stuff up in the penitentiary. He got him three gay boys he deal with right down the hall on the same floor in the same apartment building. He come back and he be smelling like he done been to the toilet and ain't wiping butt. Be stealing my cortex because his butt be bleeding. I want my money back. That's his choice. It's his business, but, you know... Be careful what you do. You just go out and get what you're asking for. So that's not cool any way around. But see, there's a big part of it going on. Now, how do we get where we are today? Well, Johnson meant well, and he came up with this safety net thing. And a lot of enterprising sisters and some white women discovered that they could get some pretty significant checks if they did not do anything except flat back, spread, and get knocked up. The more babies they had, the bigger the check they got. And the checks were designed to give adequate support for minor children. But they didn't use it for that. They got herded into Big Mama or Madea's. Madea is a representation of that. And she took care of them. And she collected a part of the checks. And the woman kept the checks. We were uh, canvassing Nickerson Garden to recruit for college. Uh, you know where Nickerson Gardens is in L.A.? Oh, yeah. No, right by Imperial and Central. Yeah. All right. Now, it's always been kind of rough over there. Only me and two other brothers would go, and the rest of them were five or six women that would fill out forms. So we were recruiting people to college, and we got some pretty good people out of there. So, brother, I got to get the hell out of there. What I got to do? Well, go over to the rec room. These sisters will help you fill out the forms. 
Well, we had this woman. Look here. I don't want to be here, but my social worker said, I got to come see you fools to get your sign off on this paper she gave me here to keep my check. Well, why should we sign off? Look, I ain't going to go to no goddamn college or school. Hell no. I ain't working. I'm going to flat back gap, get my ass knocked up and get a bigger goddamn check. Now, sign this shit. No, get out of here. We ain't going to do it. Actually, long story short, that very woman that I had in mind, which wasn't the only one, she got killed when she, her oldest son, and one of her brothers got shot to death trying to hold up a liquor store. Mm. All right? See, that's the way it was going. And what happens is an anecdote, anecdote uh, what was in my courtroom. This is 1994. I have this 57-year-old woman in there on felony drug and theft charges. She was boosting, well, she was selling hot merchandise and running a crack house, two up maximum. So she was 57 and she wasn't in good health, so she was trying to get some kind of relief. She had a 43-year-old daughter she had when she was 14, which was not her oldest daughter. But the 43-year-old daughter had a 34-year-old daughter born one week before she was 10 years old. The 34-year-old daughter had a 21-year-old daughter, all of them in my court, on felony charges. The 21-year-old daughter had an 11-year-old girl who was, guess what, pregnant with her second child. So 15 months later, I get the 21-year-old back in. She's 23 now. Her 11-year-old is 13. The 13-year-old now has three children. The 57-year-old is 59. And I remember I was making her come back so I could eyeball her to keep her straight uh, and stop creating such hell. And one week when she came back with the forms filled out, she had 342 lineal descendants. Two weeks later, she had 358. Now, I wound up with more than 120 of her direct descendants in my courtroom, and this woman is still breathing. One of these guys had 67 outside kids, and he was 29 years old. Another one had 54. Another one had 46. So, you see... When we analyzed all these people, there were only two members of this family that had ever graduated from high school and ever had a job of any kind that we could detect. By the time I retired in 2000, she had 3,400 lineal descendants. See, they, ex they increased exponentially. Yes. So it's weird looking at somebody who has this many children and see the public defender's office was keeping track of her and four more women similarly situated, including one white one. And between the five of them by 2008, they had a quarter of a million lineal descendants in West Tennessee and they're still breathing. So these dysfunctionals became a greater and greater and greater part of the black community. Back in the late 60s, when there was no tuition in certain states, black folk could be recruited because education was part of the national defense because there was a space race and a missile race going on with the Russians. 
everybody could get in school if they wanted. So a lot of enterprising black folk got jobs, did time in the army or did time in college, not going to jail, but spent, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And they had careers and opportunities and they left the hood. Mm -hmm. So the hood kind of emptied out in a way, but there was a vacuum that these women who were getting these bigger checks filled by all of the babies they had. 12, 13, 14, 15 children by eight, nine, 10 baby daddies. Mm. And became a matriarchy. And in the South, the same thing was going on with the caveat that made it worse is that in the Southern states, able-bodied males cannot get public assistance unless it is unemployment for the period allotted if they have earned it. So they are flat broke busted if they don't have any jobs. So they deal with crime and they deal with simping off of the women who get checks. So you got a matriarchy. So when I get a young man on my witness stand, when I was a criminal court judge asking for mercy, the court would say, young man, the court is curious as to how you intend to support yourself. Were the court disposed to grant you probation? Well, your honor is like this. I ain't got no job, but I got a job. See, I'm the man around the house. See, I smooth these ladies out. I got four ladies take good care of me. Two of them got good J-O-Bs. One get a crazy check. One get an AFDC. You know, I get everything I want because I smooth them out. In other words, his ideation is being jiggle mm-hmm. And what he is about is poison in his mind because he heard his 13-year-old favorite aunt say this when he was seven years old mm-hmm. and looks at the way to life is to hustle the opposite sex and have them take care. That's what women have done historically, find a man that is well-to-do in terms of providing and protecting, and they rely on him to take care of his house, whatever, or their rich housewives, and what they are is the booty call built into the home place, so to speak. And I'm not trying to belabor anybody. That's the reality of human existence. But these boys flip the script with a role reversal, and they start acting like girls, so they pimp, simp, and they don't protect their communities, and their mamas hate guys. And since son is going to be a guy, he gets all of that spleen put into him subconsciously. And when I had them evaluated, found out this huge amount of hatred for their mothers that was subliminal that they weren't even realizing that was taking forms of how they treated women. And something that became popularized with the gangster rap video genre, where you have the half naked babe bouncing around subservient to the rappers who are doing their thing but that's not even masculinity what you're looking at on the stage are representations of if the rappers got street cred what you're looking at is representations of his mama his aunts and his grandmama because he's 17 and his 42 43 year old grandmama his mama, who's 29 years old, his aunts, who range from younger than him all the way up to 27, 28. If you saw them in July when it's hot, they look like the girls bouncing around on the rap video, everything out, 
hanging on the back stoop with a smoke in one hand and a 40 ounce in the other being lured in lascivious trying to get seduced so they could get a better check which has gotten poisonous so we have hoods where we have no men in those hoods or too few and the ideation of the young men is sick and nowadays you'll find it when you talk to the young men too many of them talk like these people 55 years ago were trying to get them to talk they are presenting like they're super masculine but they sound rather effeminate in what they tell you and their ideation and there's a problem with that the boys and the girls do not get anything on TV about how to deal with each other other than pimping and simping. They are familiar with each other remotely, but the boys have been hanging around with the boys, the homies. The girls have been hanging around with each other, friend girls. And the boys stay together, the girls stay together, and now they get this propaganda that it's okay to have sex with same sex, so they have sex with friend guys and sex with friend girls. And it's easier, and they can get an orgasm. Now, there's an interesting statistic that is pretty consistent all across the board from multiple sources. In America, about 5.57% of the nation is homosexual all right yes for those 55 and older the percentage range is dependent upon the survey between about one and a half and two percent for the group 18 to 25 it's 16 percent but then you look at this statistic which is also kind of disturbing there are more boy virgins 18 to 25 than there are girl virgins 18 to 25. The dudes ain't getting no booty. And a few are getting it all. So these groups that get cut out, and by the way, this isn't just black people. This is all ethnic groups in the pile. So you get this trend that is getting amplified by public relations to push it it's like do you buy a product or are you inclined to buy a product because you've seen a commercial answer mm -hmm. yeah. I like that one it wasn't me for Cheetos I went out and bought some bags of Cheetos behind Shaggy in that commercial wasn't me saw you in the shower wasn't me saw you in the kitchen wasn't me and if you've heard wasn't me you know she caught us butt naked banging on the uh, kitchen floor. You know? Jackie, it wasn't me. <laughs> but I went off and bought some, to reward them, I bought a couple bags of Cheetos, you know, some flaming hot and regular ones, you know. I mean, these activities impact people. Now, I said this on Kwame's show, but this is an important thing, is what television and the movies can do to you. There is no control of this over the movies, but there is some FTC control over television that hasn't been enforced for almost 60 years, more than 60 years. 
I remember in the 50s, my mother would want a Coca-Cola or I'd want one, just crave one. The old man hated Cools, but he wanted a pack of Cools instead of his regular Chesterfields. And what happened was they had these subliminal commercials that were flat, flash, so quickly you couldn't, you weren't consciously aware of them. said, smoke Cools or drink Coke, and it would get to you and you start craving it. Mm-hmm. So I noticed busted that and they publicized it and went away but you see they put subtle stuff in the movies and in the tv shows and in the productions you see that acclimates you to certain things that you aren't aware of and makes things that you might not otherwise like acceptable because it's going into your subconscious and for 50 years, as we just got through talking about, they've glorified dysfunction and they have pushed, 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 pushed this stuff about gayness. Now, it was good politics by the gay crowd, but we've got this LGBT cult that is like a secular religion. And they get to force feed their cultism into the children and the parents can't opt out unless they take the kid out of school. We have to get force-fed it by the governments, state and federal, whether we like it or not. We have to look at it on TV. And if you will recall, hell, in your lifetime, you know, you couldn't have but certain things, even heterosexual on TV before, you know, that guy had to be after 10 o'clock. Yeah, you couldn't even now, see kissing until after 10 o'clock. Now you can put that stuff the other way. Everywhere you want it, and you got kiddies cartoons, and then there's insidious stuff. They have a cartoon called Doc McStuffins. Five female lesbians produce, direct it, and get it together, okay? Uh, white lesbians. It's their business, but here's the character. The main character is a very pretty little black girl. Her mother is... She kind of looks like Mickey Minaj and Bill... But she is a female black physician, black female physician. They got a little frilly apron wearing sissy that is the daddy that cooks and cleans so his wife won't have any impediments to her career as a doctor. So little Doc McStuffins has a magic necklace that brings stuffed animals and toys to life. And she doctors on them when they get broken or hurt or whatever. And they amplify her. They show this house drone as an ideal image of masculinity who is cooperative and subservient to the female. He happens to be black. The girl happens to be black. Her little brother, they treat like a damn fool. He happens to be black. And the black mother physician walks in bragging to her white friend girls about how well her husband cooks cleans and takes care of the house and oh don't you wish that your husbands were like that and then this is a kid's show there's an ongoing dialogue with some of the white female doctors about who needs one now that is one of the most popular emmy winning children's shows and if i were a parent these days with a kid in that age range i would watch closely and absolutely keep that from being watched by any child particularly a black one because black men don't need to be house husbands we have too many other important things 
and see, you don't need to be bad mouthing masculinity like that, which is what they do. See, it's insidious. Okay, a couple of years ago, I just happened to be in the house and I'd gone out and walked around. And it was hot. I came in, I turned on the TV because I was waiting for somebody to call me on some business. And I'm surfing through, you know, the guide on cable. Comcast and they had Justice League what's Justice League here is that Superman so I just turned it on mm-hmm. Here's the, they've got Superman Batman Aquaman uh, Cyborg they've got Flash they've got another bunch of male heroes and the leader is Wonder Woman mm-hmm. go, whoa wait a and then Wonder Woman flies this stealth airplane that's invisible and she's got a Amazon co-pilot who's her lover the plot of this thing for junior high school 5th 6th graders is that the ah oh, there we go so the plot is that the Amazon is jealous of Superman talking to Wonder Woman. So she's got this plot to get Lois Lane jealous and rank out Superman's actions so she can have Wonder Woman all to herself. Now, that's being shown to these adolescents and young teens. And I'm just saying, man, wow. But you know what? They don't have anything on there anymore about even high school little boy-girl love. It's all... You're right. You, all, we, haven't all seen a, we haven't seen a true coming-to-age movie about a young man and a young woman coming together, liking each other, and starting a family. We haven't seen a movie like that in probably 20, maybe 25 years. Yeah. See, people get on me. Why you doing watching it? I said, look. I don't mind getting your freak on, but for God's sake, they have children out there. I used to be a scoutmaster for 15 years until they decided to let in that other group. And I bailed. I said, this is going to be a disaster. It was, but I've been a school teacher and a playground director. And I don't like people messing with kids. Yes. So I think kids need to be given a proper foundation and when they have matured enough to get self-control and have some knowledge of the world and some developed independence, then they can start making choices. You do not need to let an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 11-year-old make critical life choices when he or she is still into he wants some candy above all things. So what happens is the children are particularly subject to influence and you don't need to be showing them indecent, lewd, and lascivious stuff that should be kept for adults only. Think about it. How many songs that were on the radio when you were seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven years old, do you remember now? How many of the songs that they taught you in elementary school? I remember they wanted to teach us zippity doo where Uncle Remus, a slave who was angry that the South 
was invaded by the northern invaders and were going to set him free so he'd have to work for himself. We had to memorize that in elementary school. Bad enough, but I'm years and years, almost 70 years past that point, but I still remember it. Uh, all of the Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, mm -hmm. I remember that. See, but what are these kids getting in? They got a drag crane waiting to them with all this makeup caked on, looking like a harlot who has been taken out of a casket after embalming. And that's what their memories are going to be. And they got all of this crazy stuff that they look at. Think of what's going to be in these kids when they get 35, 45, 55, and the tune runs in your head. If you, you, everybody's had this experience where a tune they didn't even like kept running in their head and they yes. couldn't stop it. Well, just a man. Uh oh. It propagandized with now. Okay, look at what they have. Uh, I have a friend who works in the CDC senior party getting ready to retire. They've got a release that they've been trying to get out to the public about. HIV surging again to almost epidemic proportions, but the networks won't run the public service announcements because they want the commercial revenue from Travada commercials. Mm. See? And you see the other thing they deal with in the imagery, you got, what is it? Uh, Uber food delivery, right? They got this young sister who actually meddled in the Olympics. She's a beautiful creature, you know, beautiful young lady, and she's very talented. But they got this bun-wearing, beard-wearing, what is it? Uh, she says, uh, looks like Jet. There you go. He, he says, Oh, I've got Uber ordering in, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to have this, this, and the other. And she says, splitsies. And then he, the musical does this split on a balance beam. And then he goes with his little sweet self. And he says, oh, you meant the food. Oh, I'm going, oh, I hate that. And that's all you're looking at. So these kids, five they see this over and over. That becomes normalcy. Today. You're right about that because now, as humans, it's only human. Humans learn through the power of suggestion. People think you get taught by someone saying, directly do this, directly do that. That's a small part of teaching. The biggest part that we learn growing up is just suggesting. These things being suggested over and over and over and over and over again. And... Again, we also learn behavior through rewards and consequences. If one, on one hand, you're always being suggested this stuff, and on the other hand, the children see everyone being rewarded. Or Dwayne Wade's kid is rewarded because he now wears a dress. Or this woman is now rewarded because she says I'm non-binary. So they keep well, saying, not only is it the suggestion, it's the people who are in his lifestyle keep getting rewarded. And the alpha males, like what Kwame Brown was talking about, always seem to end up getting punished put in jail, hung out to dry, being used as an example of everything wrong. So all that combined together, 
Well, you know, they better watch out because I sense a bad backlash coming. And there's a reality check, and I keep telling folk the status of a people is determined by the status of its men. And if you don't believe me, you ask one of those families where they had great-grandmothers, grandmothers, and mamas who survived World War II, and when their men got put down by the Wehrmacht marching east, the women got raped, and when the Russians came through and the Germans got run out, the women got raped. So the bottom line is, if the men can't make it on the wall and hold off the invaders, the women they ain't even going to be asked. It's going to be taken. So that's always a problem. But this glorification of this bloody doggone dysfunction has got to stop because it is poisonous and it's subliminal and it is bad because it conditions the breakup of the family. Mm-hmm. Here's the bad part. Children learn by copying and emulating. If the mama is not married, well, never been married, that kid doesn't get to see decent human interaction between men and women on a regular basis. So what he sees is made up, what he does not see in home is made up for by what he sees on the tube. And what he sees on the tube is abnormal. Okay? The mother tends to be busy and she plops the kid down in front of a TV set so she can get some kind of peace or attend to her business. And the kid looks at this, looks at that. And he gets a huge load of this propaganda. It's subliminal and not so subliminal. So by the time he is seven years old, this is sunk in. And physiologists and psychologists say that the human psyche is written in stone by the time the kid is seven years old. Yes. So now for the rest of this kid's life, his ideation is what he sees on the TV. Now, you and me, we watch cartoons. How many cartoons can you remember and what the Roadrunner did and what Wiley Coyote did and got himself jacked up with the Acme company he ordered piano from to drop from the cliff? Or, you know, Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny or Mickey Mouse and whatever and Minnie Mouse and... Donald Duck, we can remember those episodes. These kids remember what they're getting. And it's not healthy. Yes. The, it's, it's not just the homosexual slant. It's the fact that at this point, children should not be exposed to prurient sex of any kind. And what they're getting a big dose of is prurient sex. On the normal side, you have Lizzo and Cardi B and that bunch is a, oh, man, what kind of example is that to give to the girls? None. You have Atlanta Housewives where they cuss and the girls get in fist fights and they have these vendettas and it's just sickening. For the mainstream society, you have all these housewives. You know what's funny? When you see the reunion, you see Anderson Cooper. He's all gayed out when he's doing it and you meet the executive directors and every executive director for every housewife is a flamer. He's not just gay. He's a flamer. And 
this poison is put in these young women's heads and it has replaced the poison they used to get, which I think corrupted American society over an 80 year period. It was the soap opera started off on the radio. And it devolved into Johnny wants to deal with Susan, but mm -hmm. then maybe he can't because Susan's real daddy may in fact be his father, but turns out maybe it's his uncle. But then you find out it's not really the uncle because the uncle isn't really blood kin because blah, 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 blah. And you get these scandals and everybody's running home to see Erica, the latest, latest episode of Sleaze that's going to come out and they can hardly wait. So it, it's not good. It even devolves into this. I complained to the Princeton folks some years ago about one of their LSAT exams. I saw some samples. They had a question on if Tamika wants to be with Jamal, but Jamal has a grandmother who blah, blah, blah was adopted and her father seems to have been so-and-so who was such and such and such and such. Can they get married without it being incest? And they go through, what the hell is this garbage? I've been doing this for a half century and I've never had a real life case that dealt with that. So you know what they're responding <laughs> This is so the young women will have an equal chance on the exam by giving them stuff that they're familiar with. They shouldn't be familiar with that kind of sleaze. Nobody should. Nobody. You're examining 20, 21, 22-year-old girls who want to get in law school. They don't need to have a lifetime of young adolescents familiar with this garbage. And the boys don't need it either. See, I've always been about decency. I mean, get your freak on if it's all adult. You know, I mean, that's your business. That's the whole point. If it's all adult. Yeah, I, I just don't like it when somebody tells me I have to do something. Yeah. And then for these protective acts they've got now, what they do to the First Amendment is ridiculous. Oh, my God. For example, the First Amendment says the right to assemble and petition for a redress of grievance shall not be abridged in so many words. That means you can come together, you can advocate somebody showing up because the petition doesn't have to be in writing. It can be a demonstration. You can say, we don't like this. We want something to do, to do about it. So nowadays, that's supposed to be inciting a riot if somebody is trying to get folk to assemble to petition for redress of grievance or a complaint. See, now they're making it criminal. They're saying that if you say certain things about certain people that would not even be actionable civilly in terms of a defamation action. Now you can be put in jail for it. See, see, see. this what the Nazis did back in the 1920s through 30s. And I've been told that this is years ago that America was in high danger of becoming fascist. Not from the usual thugs who go around brutalizing the population and forcibly taking control of the government, but from what this particular informant was telling me, some beatnik hippies who trying to do a favor to you and acting in good conscience are going to impose methods of fascists to protect you from yourself. 
So I put it instead of jackbooted fascist, goose stepping, brutalizing that takeover of the government, imposing censorship and propagandizing the people to stay in control. We had pink panty wearing fascists who switched and twitched instead of goose step. They took control of the media. They propagandized the public, took over control of the government, and now they're attempting to implement censorship so they can maintain that control and totally morph the communities that they supposedly control into something that thinks otherwise. We have not had anything comparable to this, honestly, since Nazi Germany. Yes. When the children were compelled to get propagandized in school. That's what's happening now. And I don't care whether you're homosexual or straight or in between. You got no goddamn business utilizing the functions of government. that is brought out by getting people to think of them like Lizzo. Mm. Getting people to think of them like they're a harlot. Getting people to think of them like that bunch of wackos who comes on on these housewife shows that don't know how to behave civilly. Even to expand on that, you touched on it yesterday, even to think of them like a Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris is a mammy that slept her way to the top. And then when she got there, she turned around and shitted on the very people she was acting like she was like. I, You talked about that a little bit as far as, because there's a lot of black people going around saying, well, Kamala's black. No, she's not. She does not have our blood. She does not come from here. And she comes from a place, she has two parents who come from traditions that are anti-black in their homeland. And see how, see, the the foolishness is ignorance. A little bit of knowledge will kill you off. What happens is she's from Jamaica. She's got to be black. Now, I have a friend who's retired. I won't say what, but he has a wife who is a Jamaican citizen. She's born in Jamaica, but she's blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Her parents were born in Jamaica. They're blonde-haired, blue-eyed, but her grandparents are English aristocracy. How did that come about? Well, Jamaica was part of the British Empire and then part of the British Commonwealth. So you have Hong Kong, Singapore, remember, um, Australia, New Zealand, you got Pakistan, India, you had Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, all kinds of places, Canada, and it was a big mix. And in the Commonwealth, you didn't need an extra passport. You could come and go. Except in Jamaica, you can't leave without the government's permission if you were a citizen. I had to write a letter of recommendation for the governor general's chauffeur. Mm. He was 60-some years old. He wanted to go visit his son, who was in school in New York, doing well. But he couldn't leave until I helped him out by writing a letter directly to the governor general. And you see, that's how crazy it gets. But we don't get that. So born in Jamaica, she's got to be black. What Camilla is, I said that with Kwame, and that is she's an Indo-Aryan. 
that's what Hitler was talking about. But they told a big lie long enough, loud enough to get the Aryan nation, the Aryan brotherhood, the German people to believe they were blonde haired, blue eyed. No, they're dark skinned to swarthy to paper bag brown with long, coarse hair and dark eyes. And they are Indo-Aryans and they come from the Indus River Valley or further east into Asia. They actually did set Germany up. And later on, some lighter types came in from the steps, steppies, and things happened. But those are Aryans. So she claims, but only when it's convenient. And as a matter of fact, when I had my show at first, there was this drop-dead gorgeous sister. She was dark brown, long hair, beautiful. And she teased me one day. She said, you think I'm a black woman, don't you? I said, yeah. She says, I was born in India. I'm a Hindu, but I can't go back to India. Said my mother and father, my mother was a Brahmin and my father was in the warrior caste and he took an oath to my mother's family to protect her with his life. They fell in love, ran off, got married, here I am. And there's a death warrant from the families out on both of their heads if we go back. She said, but I'm not black American. And I had another two people in there that confessed to me that they weren't black. There's one guy told me to read this book that a Hindu wrote and he got a scholarship fellowship to grad school and undergrad because he shaved off his hair and said he was black. You see that happens. Yeah. We go for it because sometimes you see what you want to see. And we desperately want something that's not dissimilar from Germany. When the Nazis started taking over or trying to in 1920, Germany was only 43 years old, 44 years old. It had been unified in 1876, 44 years later. I've been practicing law longer than that. Yeah. So it plays. So what happens is that these people had a need to identify with something. Mm-hmm create something false for them to identify with. You tell it loudly, you tell it longly, and they come to believe it with a passion. Now, one of the dynamics that's bad for black men that I saw back in the 60s is being gay was a way of opting out of the man-on-man challenge. You no longer were mano-a-mano with the white folk. You just became another sex object for a certain kind of white folk. You know, so that is a cop out. It's hard to teach a boy to get to the point where the Titanic is sinking in the icy sea in the pits dark and say, I'm going to drown so women and children can get in a lifeboat first. That takes a lot. And you got to work on a boy for years and years over and over again to get him to that point because society needs it. We're in a safety bubble right now at this point in this century, but it's going to get a lot worse in the succeeding decades. Mm -hmm. What it used to be. So there'll still be a need for real men to protect and provide, but 
now we're trying to teach them to be subservient and afraid and cowardly and to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. uh, we have wiped out boys being able to deal with bullies, which is part, I said this yesterday, part of being a man, you got to learn how to deal with bullies and take the ass whipping or whip ass if it comes to standing up for one, to one. But now the parents, school teachers, and the police are supposed to take care of it. We get these laments about, oh, he was bullied online and he killed himself. My opinion, weak motherfucker like that, take your damn ass out. And what the hell about these old things? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's Man right. the fuck up. Goddamn. Excuse <laughs> me. Now, I'm an example of stuff where masculinity can make a difference. Ron Chappelle, now Dr. Chappelle, he's a martial arts master and a PhD. The late Dr. Clifford Stewart, uh, an exceptional martial artist, whom Black Belt Magazine for 15 years said was probably the most dangerous human alive in America. And one of my close buddies and Judge Joe Brown we ran the playground in the late 60s at Trinity Avenue Elementary School, which was probably one of the worst areas in L.A. at that time. Oh, yeah. Trinity Ave. You talking about over off of King Adams? Yeah. And, man, we yeah. had a killing. Uh, Cliff became the youngest playground director in the L.A. school system when they burned up the Volkswagen belonging to one previous playground director that he was assistant to, uh, turned over the car of another one that replaced that guy. So they gave it to Cliff. So Cliff, Chappelle, and I were into martial arts. And we wound up getting the whole community, gangsters, thugs, and everybody unified behind us. And... That's because we were doing something good for the children. We wound up getting a radio station we operated. We wound up bamboozling uh, one of the movie houses to give us the latest run movies because Chappelle uh, was a the only licensed black projectionist in the state of California at the time. I was the DJ on the radio show. Mommy, oh, daddy, oh, this is JoJo coming to you on the show. Ah. You get on the go, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, we sold hot dogs, raised kids, and the three of us black men got transportation courtesy of the USCLA administration to take 200 kids from kindergarten to seventh grade downtown L.A. to the movies every Wednesday mm. to three of us black men, young black men kept it so orderly that we would have a trial period and the theater managers would say, come back. They buy up the concession stand and the patrons are saying, I didn't even realize there were any children in here. We kept them so quiet. Occasionally we'd get some sisters that would bring three or four or five other kids and that'd be seven of them. And by the time they got through, the kids were all yelling and, Cliff and I would have to go down and put things back in order, including their kids. You're suppressing the kids' initiative. No, we're taking them to be quiet so it doesn't ruin it for all the rest of them. Hell with that. They can be quiet. No, they can't. Yes, they can. Look at all these people. If humans didn't learn how to keep children quiet, something 
big fangs, big appetite, large size would have eaten most of us up before we got old enough to breathe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Don't give us that. See how we work it. But anyway, we got it going on. And we have two very notorious graduates of that playground. One of them is now dead. The other one's now dead. The one most people know about is the singer Barry White with the deep voice. I yeah, remember South him. Park. Yeah, I remember him. No, that was uh, Isaac Hayes. Yes. Barry White, singer. Big Barry. Yo, you know, I'm yeah. saying he, but he, I'm saying he's a B in South Park in L.A. Oh, L.A. Yeah, but I was thinking about uh, Isaac. Isaac Hayes. Hayes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. South Black the, the Black Moses soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> Black Caesar yeah. soundtrack. I mean, I knew Helen Washington, who is the bald headed chick on the cover of Hot Buttered Soul. She used to be a tenant of mine and a friend. Okay. Anyway. Uh, small world, but Barry White, I remember, is a 12, skinny little 12 year old kid with a voice, but it wasn't that deep. And he did well. And there was another skinny 12, 13 year old kid on that playground, and he was super intelligent, had all kinds of leadership, but his mother would not let him get out that swamp. So he just became the baddest alligator in the swamp, wound up forming a gang, and his name was Tookie Williams, and he was the last person executed on California's death row. He was a good kid, but things happened, but he redeemed himself and wrote six children's books for which he was supposed to have gotten a Pulitzer Prize, and if anybody, the governor should have commuted his sentence to life, but he let him be executed. It took 45 minutes for them to execute him because they couldn't get it right. So he may end up hung in there toward the end all the way through. And that's a tragedy, but it is what it is. So, yeah, you can do things. And we even have one graduate who was a 16-year-old uh, high school student we had working down there. And Cliff one day locked up a LAPD squad car on the playground. You know, in L.A., there's a chain link fence eight feet, nine feet high around every campus with lockable gates. So they kept coming up in there and harassing the kids. So Cliff just took one of these big, huge case locks and these huge case hardened chains and padlocked the gate. They got stuck in there. They had to call their command sergeant who chewed them out for coming down there and messing with what he called a good program. So two days later, this 16-year-old, three days later, he shows up after missing two days at the playground with his arm in a cast and a bandage around his head. And these cops had jumped him and broken his arm in retaliation and beat him up. So that was a big to-do thing. In the auditorium, the Panther Party was down there, the community was down there, and we had this police meeting, and the command officers were trying to reduce the tensions, and these idiots in the squad car at the time were trying to ramp it up, and I was on stage haranguing the crowd, and two of them got mad, started advancing up on the stage, and Cliff knocked both of them out. You know, the cop, the lieutenant was there, stop, stop, we're not having, no, everybody put everything down, stop, you know, it it went there. So remember, you know, how many of our so-called woke folk can have those kind of experiences. One thing, let me talk about us old men. A lot of us 
did things we can't talk about because statutes statutes of limitation have not run. Uh-huh. Some of us might write about it in our memoirs, but we can't tell. There are all kinds of things that got done that these kids don't have the gumption to do. What the hood rats do killing each other of, we did in the name of the movement. You know what I'm saying? Yes, yes, I'll yes. I'll leave it at that. So a lot of times, and see the other thing too, I saw somebody messing with somebody that I knew had done two tours in the knob. He was a sniper. He had a confirmed kill sheet of at least 12 folk where he actually could see them smile, chewing on something, spitting before he took them out. He saw them drop. So that is not the kind of person that as a fool, unless you were a fool, you go around messing with. But you see, they always associate that with thugism rather than somebody that has got a degree and a good job. I was in New York and they had me speak at Abyssinian Baptist Church to some street youth out of Harlem. Before that, New York University had had a graduation exercise and Professor Roscoe Brown showed up. He was a retired professor emeritus from the university, New York University. He was in his 80s and still ran the New York Marathon. Now, his real claim to fame is he was Captain Roscoe Brown of the 332nd Tuskegee Airmen. Okay. And the interesting thing is, is now that they've gotten the Luftwaffe records, they have computerized these things and been analyzing, and a lot of all these super white aces have had their tallies knocked down, and some of the black guys have gotten theirs picked up. So it is now acknowledged by the Defense Department that the leading and high-scoring U.S. Army Air Force fighter unit for the last nine months of World War II was the 332nd. So they've been building up Roscoe Brown's tally by looking at archaeological remains of shot-down planes in the ground and stuff and tallying the German records. So he's now the number two high-scoring ace in Europe. Oh, wow. So what I did is he accompanied us over to Abyssinia to talk to these youth down in the basement. So they were all this and that bad and talking about, you know, with the posse and popping caps. I said, I can bet you nobody in this room as is stone cold a killer as somebody in here that with his permission, I'll later identify for you, but see if you can't pick him out. He's up front. So they couldn't pick him out. I said, well, okay, let's put it this way. He's got a confirmed kill of at least 18 men. Wow. At least. At least. Oh, yeah. I'll give another clue. He did it at four hours away from home with 60 to 70 degrees below zero. Next clue. 30,000 feet. Is this dude a fighter pilot? Yeah. Well, ain't no white boys up in here. Where he at? I said, ain't got to be white boy. He shot down 
two German jets. Well, where the white boy? He hiding in the back. So they're looking for some gangster. And Professor Brown stands up. He's about five, six. He's genial, got a good expression, and he tells good jokes. You know, so he stepped up. He said, it's me, you know. You the dude did all that? And see, what the thing is, is they were assuming that, let's see, I got a note down here. They <laughs> were assuming that he was supposed to be looking like a gangster, not a PhD professor yeah. with a tie on and vine down. You know, damn. So you see, they came up and were talking about this caused them to reassess their opinion of what reality was. Because you see, we were trying to tell them you can be a man and get your head together. You don't have to be a fool. There's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with going to school. So you're equating who's the baddest somebody out there. I said, I'll bet you not one of you knows somebody that killed 19 people. Officially. Officially, yeah. For the country. Not mentioning strafing up the grounds, truck convoys, blowing up trains and stuff. See. But you see, they did not understand the separation between man is a protector and a provider and man as a leader for constructive purposes. You right about that, Judge? <clears throat> like, I always say one of the biggest issues we deal with is the lie of omission. Lies of omission are the worst kind of lies because they tell a small, small, small part of the story as if it's the story and they omit stories like this. So you have a lot of young men tying all things together. Like we when we first started the show, talking about all these young men who don't have a positive male influence in their life. They're raised in these female environments. And then when they turn on the TV, you have all of the, all the Doc McStuffins. You have all this stuff going on, but they omit true masculinity, how that looks, how that works, and how that functions. So people walk around with the assumption of, Okay, masculinity masculinity is these dudes walking around with their pants singing, acting like a thug. Basically, what do you call them? Lesbians with male uh, plumbing. Lesbians and boys' bodies. Yeah, so that's what we get through the lie of omission. Well, let me give you an example, yours truly. I'm blackballed by Hollywood because I wouldn't support their agenda. 15 years, miserable working conditions. I had to watch my six every day, 24-7, because they were trying to pull off some nonsense. If you look in Wikipedia and you look up Judge Joe Brown, the show, it may still be in there. I don't know. They'll take it out. But at one time, they were saying I was the second highest paid person in Hollywood behind Judge Judy. But you don't know that. Judge Judy wasn't just the number one judge show. She was the number one syndicated show. And I wasn't just the number two judge show. I was the number two syndicated show in America. And every time I started beating Judy, CBS syndication changed her Nielsen schedule. So she would stay ahead of me in the ratings. For the last three years, Oprah Winfrey and Rob, uh, Dr. Phil were in the same special unit that a guy named Roger King who discovered her and, and ran King World was running for CBS. 
And I beat Oprah almost every week in the ratings. Phil, every damn week. He never even came close to me. But who's the superstar, Oprah? Who's the superstar, Dr. Phil? Who's the superstar, Judge Judy? I used to like to watch the judge, but you don't realize you were looking at the highest paid man in television outside of Leslie Moonves for CBS as their CEO. <laughs> I was in my 50s. See what I'm saying? I had a life. And I didn't aspire to make believe and fantasy my whole adult career. I mean, it's weird dealing with people where they're acting parts like they're out there in the streets and they're all down and all it is. And they've never been out there. And since they've been 13, 14 years old, they were sheltered. They didn't go out in the streets. And they were, oh, I've always wanted to be a star. Oh, my God. This part let me find out who I am. I never knew who I was until JV allowed me to get this part. And it, I, it, finally, I found myself. What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> or here's the one. Yeah, man, we got to get down with the brothers, man. We got to go make a move, man. And then you hear, oh, my God, it was so fascinating. I just, oh, I was just thrilled to be so, oh, raw. Oh, my God. God dang. You know, <laughs> that's why some people don't hang around in Hollywood because they'll set you up. Yes. And. I won't get into that. I got into it yesterday, but I just objected him bad mouthing these sisters by putting up these negative harlot images of black women. Yes. That do not represent these beautiful ladies that I know and getting everybody to think that is. And then converting the newest generation of young black females into that kind because that's their ideation. That's the big thing that judge that's and I know I, I know you have things to do today, so I don't want to keep you too too much longer. Um, but that's the big thing I want people to take away. When you hear men talk, and there's something about us men with the last name Brown, Judge Joe Brown, Kwame Brown, nigga me. Us Browns, we some militant folks. Uh you talked about Elaine Brown earlier. We 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 not here to disrespect gay people. We're not here to disrespect effeminate men. We're not here to disrespect anybody. What we're saying is there's a bigger picture here and that's the strength of the society moving forward. And in order to have a strong society, you have to have strong families. And we see there's an agenda with a few people who run everything that we see to censor true manhood, real masculinity, it's happening through the propaganda machine, which is what we call the media. It's happening through the school system with uh, trans reading to babies. It's happening through the cartoons. It's happening through the legal system, like Judge said earlier, with these men having to go to jail and, and get dug out in the ass and shit. So it's happening on all fronts. And so part of being a man is to protect and provide. Right now, society needs protection. 
because society has been assaulted by a few people up top who control all of the propaganda that we see here and ingest through entertainment, education, labor, law, politics. Y'all know the nine area of activities by Nene Fuller. So we're here addressing that issue. For those with an open ear, listen and hear what we're saying. Like I always say, there are no perfect messengers, only perfect messages for those willing to listen. So this is the perfect message for those willing to listen. If you have an issue with judges' language or anyone, how anyone says it, that's for you to deal with somewhere else. We ain't trying to hear it. Because when it comes to true masculinity, it doesn't matter how the message is delivered as long as you get the message. So judge, give us, you know, you break. You can end this however you want to end it. Take it whatever direction you want to go. Take as much time as you want. But I want you to go ahead and, you know, put a button on everything that we're talking about here as far as masculinity. Let me do that. You got to deal with what you see in the mirror when you shave or comb your hair or brush your teeth every morning. Do you uphold the day before? Or are you going to uphold that day? Will you uphold tomorrow? That's what you have to do if you're a man. Duty, honor, obligation, responsibility. Cut all this crap out about white supremacy holding you down. Yeah, it's real, but it's just adversity. But it's not a lion roaming around in the Serengeti wanting you for lunch. And our ancestors did not hide in a hovel to get away from Simba. They conquered Simba, conquered everything. Now, that's adversity. This shit doesn't bite you. It doesn't use you for a lunch, brunch, dinner, midnight snack, or breakfast. So quit using it as an excuse. Prepare yourself to deal with adversity. Quit talking about, you know, I ain't got no hope, no daylight at the end of my tunnel. Well, if you take care of your business like you're supposed to, it's your job to get the people you're responsible for through that tunnel, through the smoke and flames, and get them to the daylight, even if you don't get there yourself. You die as a hero. It's your job to slay those fire-breathing healer monsters that are setting flames to the contents of the tunnel and creating all of the smoke. That's your job to kill the fire-breathing healer monsters in the tunnel and at the front door. For the gay thing, that's your business. I don't care what you do. Get your freak on. Good to you. But when you start kicking in my front door to get in my living room and sit down and trying to make me get into it, no. When you start getting, and it's why I call LGBT a cult. When you start becoming the equivalent of a third political party. See, in America, there are three political parties that are effective. The Democrats, the Republicans, and LGBTQIA+. When you become a political party and you are leftist and you badmouth the Republicans and black folk that don't agree with your agenda, to hell with you if you get pushback. You corrupt the laws so nobody can legally push back on you, but you can stomp all over everybody else. That's not going to get the type of people here going along with you. When you start trying to say we're going to defund the police and then take everybody's guns away so they're helpless because a few damn fools don't know what to do with it, that's like disarming the warrior because the slave might get cut on a sharp spear. <laughs> so you don't do that. And we know it's a game. We can read history. Some of us watch the military channel, history channel, Smithsonian, and read. And we know that's the first step 
through establishing a tyranny is get everybody to be a sheep. So you can make them do what you want them to do and you have, there's no choice to it. I suspect some of the policy that I see now re-implemented for the military is designed so you will have a cadre of self-hating people in there who will serve these warrants on, shoot fathers, uncles, brothers, grandfathers, and other men to disarm them if somebody said go and we're going to violate the Second Amendment. See, read so you don't go for the okie doke. They need a license to do this. Well, it's a bill of rights, fundamental right. Do you need a license to exercise the First Amendment? Do you need a license to insist on Says the law? No. So why do you need a license for the most fundamental right that keeps oppression from being rammed down your throat? Yes. Fundamental part of this scheme of you've got a separation of powers. You have legislative, judicial, executive. You have state and federal so that no one individual or branch can become all powerful. That's why you have the people as the ultimate check and balance to a tyranny. So translating what the Second Amendment is about in modern terms is you want to ensure that the citizenry can remain as effectively armed as is necessary to conduct an asymmetric war against an oppressive takeover. You know what I'm talking about. By yes. the way, yes. bugaboo AR-15s. It does not stand, stand for assault rifle. The AR stands for Armalite, which was a division of Fairchild <laughs> Aircraft that made novel and innovative weapons. Tell Eugene, Eugene Stoner patented the AR design 69 years ago in 1952. The weapon has been available to the civilian market for more than 60 years. It ain't nothing new. Mm -hmm. When they keep talking about getting ARs, they're talking about taking away the most popular rifle in the whole country. They've been out there for 60 years. And for somebody to get shot with one is no more notorious than somebody in 1885 being shot by a Winchester or a Marlin or a Remington. Or a damn musket. <laughs> yeah. So why the hell does these people want to advocate that you go back to an antique weapon? Why don't you just have a bolt action? Well, the Germans, Prussians, started with the bolt action. They adopted one in 1841. How long ago is that? That's 180 years ago. Uh, the lever action is actually newer. They patented that stuff. Volcanic did in 1851. Henry started producing them in 1860. It became Winchester in 1866. So you want to limit us to a 150-year-old antique, 160-year-old antique? Okay, fine. Or revolver, Smith revolvers, the kind that you associate with Smith. They patented those things in 1892. Colt did, and then Smith came in and kind of in friends. So you want us to have something that's 130 years old? California does. 
Yeah, but then if you ever seen this white boy Jerry Micklick? No. He takes an eight-shot big frame Smith revolver. It's a 357, and on a timer, he on multiple occasions has fired eight shots in less than one second. Sounds like a machine gun. It's he can use his finger faster than a machine gun can work, or at least a submachine gun. He fires so fast, he doesn't even like to use an automatic because the gun can't keep up with his finger. He does a demonstration. He takes a semi-auto Remington 12-gauge that's 60 years old, and he has an extended magazine. He can put all eight rounds. They're still in the air before the first one hits the ground, the empty case. Wow. What are you going to do? With <clears throat> he can take a pump and do five of them in the air with a pump. It looks like full auto. So what do you do with a guy like that? Hmm. Or like my late friend Cliff. Cliff used to teach killing to the instructors for Navy SEAL Team 1 out at Point Winnie. He had five people on SEAL Team 6 that were his students. The one when they went on the Ben Rodden raid. Okay. Cliff was a dangerous man. But he used to lecture to schools and to women, and there's no way you can stop him. In fact, it was funny to kind of thing. We were at LAX. I'm going to tell this anecdote and finish. We had to go to these, to New York on some business. He, I used to work for him, but he wound up being an executive with my show. He was watching my back. And we had to fly to New York and then he was going to Prague where he had a condo. So his housekeeper was complaining that they needed some fabric softener. So he took a huge duffel bag and filled it up with boxes of these fabric softener sheets. So <laughs> he fills his carry on with this stuff. And this TSA agent wants to copy attitude with Cliff about what does he need fabric softener for? So Cliff said, what does a black man have to explain why he needs fabric softener? Oh, that's something a black man can't use. So the guy said, I don't appreciate your attitude. I'm calling the police and had him stand over there. So a few minutes later, I'm over there with him. Here comes LAPD. It was this Asian cop and this white one. And they walked by and the white guy looked at Cliff and kind of nodded at him. And when he gets up with the TASA agent, I can hear him. Because I'm not in custody. I'm just walking back and forth. And there was this black basketball team, collegiate basketball team, coming through. And the TSA agent said, this big guy's got an attitude problem. Blah, 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 blah. So the white cop says, which one are you talking about? That big guy over there in the tan shirt. So the Asian guy turns around to walk off. And the white cop grabs him by his arm, pulls him back, shakes his head. Uh-uh. He said, look. He said, if that's the guy you want, let me give you a piece of advice. I would strongly suggest that you make him smile. <laughs> I said, what? And the Asian guy walked back over there. The white guy grabbed him. said, look, man, you're trying to get laid, and I want to see my wife tonight. Fuck this shit. He literally said that. <laughs> and the TSA said, I don't want to say, he said, look, let me put it to you this way. He trains our instructors. There are not enough police in this whole airport to make that man do anything he doesn't want to do, even 
if we shoot him. And he said, partner, come on, we out of here. The dude says, what? And then he stops, leans over his shoulder. Make him smile. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he got all kinds of high fives later when he was walking down Concourse B over there in Terminal. uh, uh, What was it? Four or five, whatever, when all those brothers out there on the promenade, you know, uh, little pubs. They got, hey, man, this dude's so bad, LAPD said, make him smile, man. (laughs) Run it over. See, but you got people like that. So what do you do to protect from him? No, you don't. What you do is either become a comparable badass with years and years of study, or you recognize the reason that he does not take advantage of you is because he's got this thing called manhood, this thing called uh, masculinity that is necessary because it tells the boy, makes it get into his head so he can't get it out, that he's got to be a man of public peace, dignity, and order, who can be brave and courageous when necessary. He's got duty, honor, obligation, responsibility, accountability. He has to make where he lives a better, safer, more secure place filled with economic prosperity, a sense of purpose, morality and ethics and that's what a man's job is and he'll die before he lets that get violated on his watch that's what we need and if we get some more functional men in our hood we won't have all of these killings because that killing that we get that insane self-destruction is because these boys don't know what the manhood is and it's not under control and they still represent the planetary apex predator that can kill anything on this planet, including self, real well, unless it has an internal control device where it feels intense guilt if it deviates from it, where it feels shame if it does not live up to it, where it feels intense embarrassment if it's called into question. And see, now you no longer have shame. It's all right to be a coward. It's all right to run, not a <laughs> retreat. You punk out even when it's one-on-one. You see, that's not good. So what is my conclusion? Man the hell up. Do what you got to do. Be about protecting womanhood and promoting manhood. And at last means promote it with your peers, promote it with yourself, and teach it to the next generation. That's real talk, Judge. I appreciate that. I really do. And for those of you listening, um, man, we we appreciate you, Judge, because, uh, you know, especially all of us millennials and people younger, you know, we didn't we we didn't get this through our media. Like, luckily, I have my father there, and and there are people out there who've had their family around. But through our media, we didn't get this kind of talk. So it's thankful to the internet that we can get this kind of talk. Thank you, Kwame Brown, for doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying. Uh, thank you, Tariq Nasheed, for the buck-breaking film. Go get that film. That's a dope film Judge uh, Joe Brown was in. Thank you to um, all the people out there who are really pushing black, and not just black, manhood, because manhood needs to return. Manhood is the only thing that's going to stop this nation from going under. Like Judge said before, there are things out there in this earth, no one's guaranteed 80 years just walking around like figures of cat with their eyes closed. There are things out there in life that are there to attack, that are there to make sure things don't have don't move forward. So you have to defend that by being the best man you can be, by getting your arms, 
getting uh, some sort of fight training, and also being the smartest person in the room. Get your mental knowledge up, too, so you can then thwart and see what's going on. All of these things matter because we're not going to fix anything waiting on them up top to fix it. We're going to have to fix it as individuals and push it out forward. And messages like yours, Judge, is what gives us the marching orders to move forward and complete the things that we know we need to get done. So I want to thank okay. you again. Can I give a little shout out to some stuff I'm doing? You can find me on Twitter at Judge Joe Brown TV, and I do not have a blue check. You can find me on Parlor at Judge Joe Brown, and they gave me the red P. You can catch the show, look up Judge Joe Brown and Valerie Denise or the Judge Joe Brown show. We get carried syndication on various places. We record on Friday. They'll give you a number to call in. And I got a barbecue product line. It will be out shortly, and that stuff's good. And you're still in L.A.? Tell me about that place. I was looking for it yesterday. Where? It's on the corner of 79th and Western. It's called D's Original Takeout. It doesn't say anything about barbecue. Okay. But Chef Damon does stuff for Beyonce and all of that bunch because this dude is fantastic. I've had Those some of Damon's food before. I didn't know he had a restaurant. Dope. Okay. Yeah. The best ribs, shoulder, brisket, chicken, chicken sausage, greens, everything else you can find in L.A., you will get out of his place. The brother is fantastic. We did a launch series of commercials. It'll be out shortly. You'll even be able to get it online. The site isn't operated, but it's Judge Joe Brown uh, Barbecue, JJBBQ.com, but it's not active yet. So Okay. I'll make sure to go down there and then repost it and put it on my Instagram. That's right down street from Goldenberg. That's like 10 minutes from the house. So I'm going to have to get on over there. And I remember Golden Bird real finely from growing it up. And growing up, it used to be over there in the Crenshaw District. Uh, off of what's now Martin Luther King Boulevard and Crenshaw Boulevard, back behind what used to be May Company. Yeah, the yeah. mall. Yeah. Uh, Goldenberg. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, too, because I, I, I'm, I'm, I was great yeah. here. Because I, you know, you have a lot of rich L.A. Leo's history. Barbecue. Go ahead. Yeah. Leo's Barbecue. I remember Prince Leo's. On Adams. What was it? Uh, oh, not Johnny's. Johnny's okay. pastrami. Now, yep. Another Johnny's pastrami that used to be affiliated with the one that's now closed over on Adams. It's out there on Sepulveda. Sepulveda uh, in Washington. Washington. Yeah, man, that pastrami is a monster. Yes, it is. Whoa. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Like, yeah, my, my great granduncle helped design that that Macy's that used to be that's now the Baldwin Hills Mall. He helped. Uh, he helped with with putting that up. So yeah, a lot of deep LA roots here. But I want to thank yeah. you. Go ahead. Yeah, man. Uh, and you need to do something to talk about that, like that arch thing that's not operative yeah. now. Yeah. I knew the designer's daughter. He was a black man to design that when they built that airport a real long time ago. Oh yeah, the the, the brother who designed LA. Yeah. I'm um. I'm over here drawing a blank. Uh, Paul Revere Williams. That's who it was. The Beverly Hills Hotel, the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Mall. Well, it wasn't a mall back then. It was just the Macy's and the Broadway back then. It wasn't a mall. They built that bridge in 1988. Well, May Company before Macy's. Yeah, May Company, yeah. 
Yeah, Paul, look up Paul Revere Williams. A lot of the most iconic buildings here in Los Angeles, California, are designed by Paul Revere Williams. Look up that man. Um, But thank you again, Judge Joe Brown. And also, for more, what's your friend's name, the the, the martial artist? Um, I'm drawing a blank. Grant, Sensei, Guru, Pendecker, Master, Clifford Stewart. Clifford He's Stewart. He died this year. But if you want to see something, watch his thing. It's kind of interesting. It's just a short little piece. You can catch it on the net. It's called A Little Jab. Okay. And also check out my last interview with Dr. I said with Dr. Check out my last interview with Judge Joe Brown uh, from this past December. It was right after he passed away, and you gave a really good eulogy to him. You gave a really good send-off to him. So check out my last interview with Judge, and you will hear more about Clifford Brown. Um, again, my name is Dewan B. I'm about to be out of here. Again, thank you, Judge, for joining us. Uh, remember this. There are no perfect messengers. Only perfect messages for those willing to listen and pick up the game. Can if you you're willing, you'll get the message. The, the messenger is not always going to be perfect. Niggas should have been done figured this shit out by now already. Don't look at the messenger. Listen to the message and do something with it. Apply it to your life and work it. Um, my live drum sample packs for you music producers, is, they're out there. All in my link tree. I got my book, No Time to Waste, a self-motivation guidebook, teaching you how to get off your ass and find your dreams, find your passions in life, and what to do about it. I wrote a book on it. It's in the link tree description box below. Again, thank you, Judge Joe Brown. Thank you for everybody who's listened. My name is Dewan B. We out. All right.